Well, happy Father's Day. If you have your Bibles, get them out and open them to Psalm 15. And um, let's see, let's go. There we go. A father's best affection. Uh, the, everybody was giving me a hard time in the staff meeting today because, from, or not today, but this week, because um, on Mother's Day we did Proverbs 31 for the women. And then on uh, Father's Day, we're doing Psalm 15, which applies to everybody. And they're like, what's with that? Where's our dad's sermon? And uh, so this is going to be specifically aimed at dads. And dads get the title. Okay, it's Father's Day. You get the title. And we know that uh, dads are not the super, they're, they're not the highest on the list for various things. You know, Christmas is the most popular holiday, number one spending day. And we know that Mother's Day is up there around two or three and Father's Day is way down on the list as far as uh, spending and popularity. And so um, anyway, uh, we know that dads don't get everything, but today, you dads, you all get the title. Um, it was so fun. One of my kids showed me an Instagram post from one of my other kids. And it just says, uh, it was a picture of me, and it says, uh, this is a picture of the man who made sure that I didn't have daddy issues. And I was just thinking, that was so encouraging. But one of the things that Michelle and I did also work really hard on is we made sure that we gave our kids plenty of material for when they're older and they need to go to a counselor. They will have lots of things to talk about that they got, you know, from our home. Hey, the reality is uh, fatherhood is important, and we all want to do a great job at being dads. And I think one of the challenges is that sometimes, as dads, we're not sure what we're supposed to be doing. We don't know what our goals are. We don't know what we're supposed to be pursuing. And so this morning, I'm hoping by the end of the day that if you are a dad, that you will understand the most significant thing that you will do in your life and the most significant thing that you will do as a dad. You know, um, I just I want to say to all of you, too, um, happy Father's Day. Hey, we all had a dad, right? Every one of us. And uh, many of us are dads. And I just want to say happy Father's Day to you. And I know that for some people, Father's Day is a great day of celebration. But like Mother's Day, also on Father's Day, there are people who don't show up to church because the last thing they want to hear is anything about Father's Day. And there can be all kinds of grief. Um, I grew up in not a perfect environment, and uh, my dad was married before. But, and I had the blessing of being able to grow up in a home with a dad. But I have a brother and sister that I didn't know until... Um, you know, my 18-year-old brother uh, one day decided, I, I, I need to meet my dad, never seen his dad, jumped on a motorcycle, drove to our house um, with, three, with two of his friends with a motorcycle. And, I, and I'll never forget, you know, it's like uh, the day before he showed up at our house, my parents sat us down and said, you're going to meet somebody tomorrow. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, who's that? And they're like, you have a brother. <laughs> you can imagine that, that conversation. And, uh, you know, Father's Day is, is very challenging. Uh, my, my, my dad was not the perfect dad, but he was a dad that God gave me and that God really blessed and used in a tremendous way in my life and somebody I'm very thankful for. Um, I think about just in my own parenting. Um, I took fathering very seriously because I grew up in a home where things in that regard were not what they were supposed to be. And one of the things, I remember being a junior higher and growing up and just thinking, um, in junior high, I wanted to be a dad because I thought this, so many things about my life and family, I thought this is not the way a family is supposed to be. And I couldn't wait to have some kids of my own and do things differently and to try to have a family that, is the way God intended for it to have. So that was always a big deal for me. It was high on my priority list. And there's lots of things that because of the diligence in that area, um, I was always, as I was growing up, I was always looking around at dads and I was looking around at kids and families. And of course, I was blessed because I was a youth pastor. So I got to see hundreds of families. I got to see hundreds of dads got to see hundreds of kids, and I, and I was in a place long enough. I was actually in the same church for 30 years, about 20 of those as a youth pastor, and I was able to watch over a 20-year period of time parenting philosophies. 
ideas on raising kids. Got three different people, very different parenting philosophies. And I had a chance to go, okay, uh, here's how these people are doing this. And I would think through, well, what would I do if I was a dad? And of course, I wasn't a dad. And that's one of the things about being a dad. Everybody gets to be their own kid's dad. Um, I got to be my kid's dad. Other people get to be their kid's dad. And none of us get to tell other people how to parent. However, I do hope that we can point to Scripture. But one of the things that was a real benefit to me is I would see patterns that would happen over and over. I could see when a person does this um, with a junior high or high school student, in 12 years, what does that look like in a kid's life? And uh, that was one of the things I did. Michelle and I, we waited five years to have kids. But we looked around and we said, who do we see um, exercising these patterns that have blessed results in the lives of their kids? Because that's what we wanted. And we would go to people and we would sit down and we would get advice. And, and we actually, that's something we thought very carefully about. And we found the right mentors. And there are so many things that we did as parents that as I look back, I am so thankful we did. And those are things that we learned from people that we had an opportunity to watch and see the fruit of their labor. There are also many things we learned to avoid. Um, but this is one of the things I just want to encourage everybody with. Psalm 68.5 says that God is the father of the fatherless and a protector of widows. Um, that is God in his holy habitation. Whether or not you had a great dad, whether or not you were a great dad, any of those things, if you didn't have a great dad, ultimately God is your father. If you weren't the dad that you wished you would have been, and when I look back, there are things about fathering that, in a sense, they break my heart. Like, I could think back to moments, actually, of the way I was a son to my dad. I could think of some things I did with, to, to my dad that every time I think of it, my, my heart just gets heavy. I think about things I did as a parent. When I think about those things, my heart gets heavy. But here's one of the things I'm thankful for. I'm not the only father my kids have. God is their father, and I'm praying for and trusting that God will continue to minister and care for my kids and to overcome the ways that I failed and to encourage and bless the things that, that I learned from some other faithful people. And so that's one of the great things, and Father's Day should be a great day. And um, one of the things, just statistically, dads are important. And we have, we, we live in this postmodern culture uh, where everybody thinks they get to have their own truth. Th that is such a joke, and it is so irrational that people can have their own truth. But what is amazing is how many people actually believe that and they live that out. And one of the things we see in our culture and society today is that dads don't matter. Um, you can have two moms, you could have two dads, um, you could be a dad today and a mom tomorrow, the same person. And, um, and, and there's, it's like they want to actually get rid of Mother's Day and call it birthing day because maybe your dad gave birth to you. Um, and it's like, no, actually, dads don't give birth, those are moms. Yeah. Um, we live in a culture where people think they can just make up whatever they want, and that can be the truth. That can be their truth. You want to know what the reality is? Statistics show that's not true. Um, we have all kinds of discussion on race and on poverty. Um, did you know that the single most significant or, uh, like, one of the most significant predictors of success in life is this? You have a mom and a dad that get married first. Second, they have kids. And third, they stay married. The statistics of people who are accepted into Harvard are massive in that they are kids who grew up in two-parent homes. Um, we have all kinds of racial issues about poverty and prison and things like that. 
Did you know that if you adjust for single-parent homes, uh, racial disparity on who gets put in jail um, disappears? We don't have a race problem in this country. We have a father problem in this country. Um, 70% of inmates in the juvenile detention centers with long sentences, 70% of them grow up in a single-parent home. 72% of juvenile murderers grow up in a single-parent home. 60% of rapists grow up in a single-parent home. And see, we live in this culture where we think, oh, yeah, let's just make up our own parenting philosophies. Let's decide what we think should be true, and that will be our truth, and that has devastating results in people's lives. And so when it comes down to it is we're trying to figure things out. It's kind of (laughs) simple. I mean, I know we say this kind of thing here all the time. You open up the Bible you read it, you take it for what it says. And that is the best way to live. That's the way that has the best results. You know, all my personal philosophy and study and examining what did this parent do and how did that work out in their their kids' lives? What did this parent do? How did it work out in their lives? I look at every single one of those things and I'm like, well, hey, I'm glad I had people to speak into my life and give me some practical advice on how to apply these things. Not a single thing I learned. I couldn't have just opened up the Bible and read. It's all right there. And yet... um, We'd rather read a psychology book or flip on the TV and hear from the latest expert. So uh, let me just uh, encourage you about a few things this morning. Um, The first thing I want you to know is that if you're a dad, it's God's intention that you be the leader of your family. It is God's intention that you lead your kids. So we live in a culture today that wants to say there's no difference between men and women. And one of the things all you got to do is open up your Bible and read it. Men and women are different. The other thing is that God has a different role for men and for women. God made us differently. He intends us to function differently. But when we are functioning the way God intends, we complement one another perfectly. And one of the huge problems in families is dads don't know what God has called them to do, and moms don't know what God has called them to do. And all the things that God says, they get all mixed up and jumbled, and you get men not functioning the way God called them to function, and women not functioning the way God called them to function. And so this is one of the things that we're going to see in Scripture and that I want to point out. God intends for men to be leaders. I just want to show you a a verse, and this is really going to be our point today is, um, and, and our title is that a father's best affection. Um. And this actually, you could say, what is a person's best affection? What is a Christian's greatest affection? What's the thing you should love most? What's the thing you should pursue most? And that's what we're going to be looking at, and I'll just give you the punchline. It is intimacy with God. That's what makes dads good dads is they love God and they want to be with God. By the way, it's what makes moms good moms is that they love God and they want to be with God. It's what makes kids good kids if they grow up and they love God and they want personal intimacy with the Lord. But this is especially, this, this is for everybody. This psalm is for everybody. But this is especially for dads because God intends you to be the spiritual leader of your home. And um, I'll just throw a couple things out there. Um, when we look at this, Deuteronomy 6.4, <laughs> God hasn't changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I, I hope that is becoming obvious to you as well. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Everything in you has one purpose, and that is that you love God. And then it says, and these words that I'm commanding you today, it's not optional, it is a command. They shall be on your heart. And this really is the foundation to all leadership. Leadership is influence. It's being around people. It is influencing people. And I'll show you a few other things. I'll mention them. But you can never lead somewhere to be. You are not yourself. And God is going to give this massive uh, command to Israel that you need to train the next generation. But where does he start? Is it with some fancy teaching techniques? Is it, let me tell you some some really important, you know, mental principles and let's, let's get all these. No, he starts by saying, who are you and what do you care about? And then, number two, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall teach them diligently. That is purposeful. And and there are people, believe it or not, they think their job is to try to make their kids like emotionally stable, and they think their job is to teach their kids to tie their shoes and one day to get a job. They think that's why they're here on earth. Um, that's, that's why you'll see little kids like to be laying in the store and they're screaming and thrashing around and, and uh, the parents go, okay, fine, give this kid what he wants because they think their job's to make them happy. They got a bizarre idea about what happy is. And they don't realize it actually, no, My job is not to make my kid stop screaming and give him what he wants. My job is to teach my kid diligently what God says. Um, They don't know that's their purpose, and that's the main purpose in parenting. And it goes on, and and it just says, this is supposed to occupy everything about your life. This is not Sunday school. This is not um, when you have like a special 20-minute session in your house. Um, you diligently and purposefully teach your kids when? Well, when you walk by the way, that's as you're living life. When you lie down, so you going throughout your day, you're teaching your kids. When it's bedtime, you teach your kids. Uh, when you lie down and when you rise up, so when you wake up, you teach your kids. When, when is it that you're teaching your kids about loving God and everything God said? When are we doing that? <laughs> All the time, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. So that means that God's teaching and God's word is supposed to impact every single thing that you do. Your job, your neighbors, the way you do your chores, the way you treat your kids, the way you treat your spouse. It's supposed to impact every single thing that you do. The other thing it goes on to say, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. That means that it impacts every single thing you think about. So when you grab the newspaper and you read it and there's some new philosophy, is that what drives your behavior? Nope. What does God say? And so this is the key to parenting and fatherhood. It's what God actually calls you to do. Um, Just to help you realize it, not just the Old Testament. Let's take a dive into the New Testament here, Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. It's not just parents that control their kids. This is a, um, a, a piece of scripture written to the church, and it addresses children directly. See, kids obey their parents in the Lord because God tells them to. God's not waiting for you as a parent to tell your kids to obey. God just speaks directly to kids because everybody needs to direct themselves to God himself personally, not through anybody else. And so God starts by saying, hey, kids, (laughs) obey your parents. Honor them. And this just quotes the Old Testament. It says, this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Um. 
why are people's lives such an incredible mess? And why are people's lives they not doing well? They don't honor their parents. I mean, that's a huge reason people have problems in life. And kids and parents sometimes think, oh, man, my job is to give my kids things that will make them happy and have a good experience in life. And they forget. No, actually, one of the most important things that you can do for your kids, one of the greatest gifts that you can give your kids is teach them to obey you. Um, I'm not, I won't even go into that any farther, but let me just stop here and say, but it does go on. It says something to dads. This, this applies to dads and moms, but it says fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's God's commission for you as a dad. And you want to know something? If it's not happening in your house, it's your job to help this happen in your house. If your wife doesn't know how to parent and you feel like, oh, man, I know the right thing to do and, and my, my spouse isn't cooperating, it is your job to figure out what needs to be done and to organize your house in a way that it happens. And that includes being a leader in your marriage. There are plenty of times that you'll have a dad who kind of has a sense of what the right thing to do is, and he'll say, we need to do this with the kids. And the mom puts her foot down and says, no, that is not what we're doing. And the dad says, okay. Um, you are the leader in your home. It is your job to lead the way God says to lead. And sometimes dads want to do things and, that are wrong. And the mom says, no, this is what the Bible says, and this is what we should do. And part of your job as a leader in your home is to say, when your wife's saying that to you, is to say, thank you. Let's do what you just suggested. Because we are all under God. So um, now let's jump, jump into Psalm 15. That's just a little bit about fatherhood and your responsibility to be a leader. So let's talk about what is the first step in doing that. And uh, here it is, Psalm 15. Um, there's this question that's asked in Psalm 15. This is super easy to outline. You go anywhere and everybody has the same out outline. There's a question, there's an answer, and there's a promise. And, and just if you were to ask a question, and you could ask any question you wanted and get the answer, what would your question be? You know, I can think of a lot of questions that people might ask. Which job should I take? Who should I marry? What could I do to restore my marriage? What could I do to repair a relationship with my kids? How could I fix this problem that uh, somebody close to me is having in their life? What medical treatment should I pursue? And what should I financially invest? God, what's your purpose for me? I just think about the value of the right answers to questions. When I was going to college, I saved my first year's worth of money, and then I quit my job, went to school to pay for my first semester. And I tried to work and pay for college as I was going through. You want to know what I should have done? I should have taken that first year salary, bought Home Depot. And then I should have taken loans for all of my college. And then I should have waited two years till after I graduated from college. I'd be a millionaire. Um, wouldn't it have been nice if I could have said to somebody, uh, which thing should I buy? But I just want you to know that this question that is asked is the most important question that anybody could ask. And getting the answer is more important than anything else that you could, any other answer that you could receive. And the promise is worth so much more than being a millionaire. Uh, this is a question that I hope you're all asking. And I will just say this. If this is not the question, the primary question you're asking in your life, then you're not asking the right question. And here's the amazing thing is we're going to get the question, the answer, and the promise directly from God. Psalms is the Old Testament hymn book, and this is poetry. And poetry, there's parallelism and emphasis that happens. So we're going to look at a few of those. So let's jump into Psalm 15. And uh, let's look at it. Psalm 15, 1. And, and I want to read, read the whole psalm. And th so th let's just read the whole thing, and then we'll come back and look at it in pieces. This is a psalm of David. 
O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Um, that's the most important question anybody could ask. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fears the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. And then it closes off with the promise. He who does these things will never be moved. He who does these things will never be moved. Okay, let's tear into this quickly and move through it. Um, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who will dwell on your holy hill? This is parallelism. And so, and, and this is the way Hebrew poetry works, is sometimes it, you say the first phrase says something, the second phrase magnifies it. Sometimes the first phrase you'll have two parts, and this part informs both of the end of the sentences, and this applies to this one and this one. And so Hebrew poetry, you've got to think about the words and how things are being laid out. But this is what, this is a building. This is emphasizing. It says, Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? In other words, God, who can visit you? Who can visit your temporary residence? And then it builds, and it's building because it's emphasizing something. And it says, no. Not only who can visit, but who can move in? Who can live with you? You see this desire for intimacy with God. That is the greatest question any person could ask. By the way, a lot of times, God allows our lives to fall apart and become a disaster because this is the, the attention he wants to get. And, and maybe when everything's going well in life, we're not thinking about What's my heart to the Lord? Did you know that that's actually part of the greatest gift God gave Job? It's part of what went wrong in Job's life. The first thing was God was saying, Job is amazing. And I'm going to brag to the world by how much Job loves me. I'm going to put that on display. So that was God's primary purpose for allowing Job to suffer. By the way, traumatized me when I was a new Christian how could God do that to somebody for his own glory? But guess what? God did that to somebody for his own glory. But this is how the book of Job ends. Job is so thankful at the end. He's been brokenhearted, devastated, crushed. And the end of the book, he says, before I had heard about God. But now my eyes have seen God. And sometimes when we're headed in the wrong direction, Job was not headed in the wrong direction. Sometimes when we're headed in the wrong direction, God allows life to crash down around us. And it's to get our attention. It's God's greatest gift. It's how he gives ourself, himself to us. And sometimes we change direction. Sometimes we figure out what really matters in life. And this is just saying you need to love God. That needs to be the number one priority in your life. And by the way, the greatest blessing, the promise is what? Your life will never be shaken. You will never be moved. What is the greatest gift you could give your kids? That their life is solid, that it could never be shaken. If you don't have a love and a desire for personal intimacy with God, you will not pass it on. You have to have it before you can give it. And so before you figure out try to ha how to be a good parent, start by saying, God, who do you want me to be? And this whole thing is not about how to be a good parent. This whole thing is about how do you be the person that God wants you to be because that's a prerequisite for raising kids that will love and honor the Lord. So these build in, in intensity. And it, it is talking about uh, your holy hill. That does talk about Jerusalem, Israel, Mount Zion. But the key about that is that's where God is. And there are times in, the, in Israel, in their history, God was in the temple. He was in his holy city. Now God indwells us. We are God's temple. But the point of this is personal intimacy with God, being in his presence. Um, what's your greatest affection? 
Psalm uh, 84.10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I'd rather go to church on Sunday morning where I can worship God in community. Uh, I would rather spend some time in personal devotions with God than be any other place on earth. I'd rather be close to the Lord than win the lottery or beat Bill Gates or have him give me everything he has because God matters more to me than anything else. And I just got to ask you, is that the desire of your heart, the call of your heart? It should be. And um, sometimes you can figure out what you love. What crushes you when it's gone? Um, that actually tells you to some degree what you value most. What is it that you leave, lose and you can't get up in the morning? Uh, do you like miss a time of prayer? Do you miss time in personal devotions? Do you miss church on Sunday morning? Not just the people, but hearing God's word, being challenged in your relationship with God. Do you miss those things and is it devastating? Or it's like, <laughs> I mean, I could take that or leave it, but my best friend's being mean to me right now and I'm crushed. Okay, well, who do you love? And um, so that needs to be our greatest affection. And uh, Jesus commands this in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind. That's your whole person. And then look at uh, this. And this, this is my encouragement to you. There's a lot of things in life you can't have. You can drive around Mission Viejo Lake. You could drive down Newport Beach. You can look at some houses. You can flip on the TV and watch some professional athletes. And I, I don't care how bad you want to be a professional athlete. Parents say you can be anything you want. No, not necessarily. Um, I'm three foot two and I have no coordination, but I could be a professional basketball player if I really want to. No. You can't be anything you want. But you could actually have this. This is available to everybody. Look what it says here in James. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Actually, this one verse summarizes all of uh, Psalm 15. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. And then this next part summarizes the second part of the verse. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. But we're just focusing on the first part. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. See, this is available to anyone who wants it. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. Actually, he's designing everything in your life to encourage you to move toward him. So the answer is, who gets to do that? And this is an interesting thing. If you're close to God, are these the things that result in your life? Or does doing these things allow you to be close to God? And I would just say from a theological perspective, when you get close to God, these things will flow out of your life. But on the human element of things also, when you prioritize these things, you will be close to God. It's both ways. So let's look at it. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. You know, this is an incredible gift because God tells us to do things. Christianity, it's a heart-motivated um, understanding. It's a heart-motivated relationship with the God. With God, we, we are not earning favor. We, it is not external religion. Christianity flows out of the heart. God doesn't say, okay, if you can jump through these hoops and do these things, then I'll save you and then I'll be close to you. No, God wants your heart. And one of the blessings in Scripture is that God says, how do you work on giving your God your heart? And also, how do you know when God has your heart? Like, how do you avoid being a Pharisee, right? Um, I mean, Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. <laughs> you walk into people, they're saying all kinds of really amazing spiritual things. 
And that was the Pharisees, and Jesus said, don't follow them, you'll go to hell. You ever read something that somebody wrote and thought, wow, that is just so amazing and so spiritual? You ever hear somebody talk, and you're like, oh, my goodness, that is just spectacular, and you're hanging on every word. And then you find out later the guy's been having an affair, he embezzled money from the church and all this kind of stuff. I mean, there's all kinds of disasters from people who on, that look, on the outside look good, like whitewashed tombs, I think Jesus called some of them. So how do you know who's a whitewashed tomb? And by the way, this will feed into our leadership thing because God doesn't want us putting whitewashed tombs in leadership. Many church problems come because people put whitewashed tombs in leadership. Okay, but how do you know if you're a whitewashed tomb or actually if you're a person who loves the Lord? And he's actually going to explain this here. Who gets to be close to God? Who is close to God? Well, it's people like this. He says, uh, the one who shows a love for God in his actions. So Michelle and I used to uh, work with people who were in abusive relationships. One of the things you tell people in abusive relationships, people getting beat up, people who are physically afraid to go home, people who have to leave their home, go into homes. Uh, we used to work with people like that. I've worked with some marriages, very serious physical abuse problems. One of the first things you tell people is you watch their feet, not their mouth. Oh, I love you so much. You are so important to me. Uh, but he punched you. That is not what you do to somebody that you love. One time I was counseling this couple, and husband's having an affair. I'm not sure he wants to leave this affair relationship that he has at work, and the couple's sitting before me, and we're talking about this, and he's like, but man, I just, I, I really, I'm in love with my wife. And I said, actually, no, you don't love your wife. And he was hurt. He was shocked. The wife was like, what? You're telling me you didn't love me? Well, read 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. We went through the whole thing and say, is that what he's doing? Because if that's not what he's doing, he doesn't love you. So you watch people's feet, not their mouth. And um, so for us, what do we need to do? We need to learn to watch our own feet and not just our mouth. He who walks blamelessly. By the way, that's the first qualification for elders, somebody who's blameless, somebody who has integrity. Um, that is not perfection. That's just a heart that over and over has a desire to obey God. He who walks blamelessly, there's walks blamelessly, does what's right, speaks the truth. The walks, does, and speaks. Those are participles. They're the, they, it means it's the overall direction of your life. And um, walks blamelessly, there's this cool Hebrew uh, contrast that happens in that second phrase. And it is uh, who does righteousness, who does what is right. That word for does in Hebrew is always used almost always used for negative things, workers of iniquity. It would be like he committed a crime, kind of the way we would use that word committed. You wouldn't say he committed love to his wife. You know, you would say he committed a crime and, and he was loving to his spouse. So that word always has this negative connotation that goes behind it. And the reason it's used is it makes this huge contrast. You're expecting something negative, but then it's something positive. So it's, it's a way, it's a poetic way of saying not evil, righteousness. So it's a person who is blameless, who does what's right, and who speaks truth in his heart. So he just, truth flows out of his heart because God has his heart. By the way, um, I have a great heart and really want to do the right thing, and I really love people, but you lie all the time. Um, there's a lot of people who tell themselves, I'm really a good person, I have good motives, I have a good heart, but they always lie. No, if you always, like, these, this is how God helps us. When I'm talking to somebody and I'm lying to them, that's not righteous, it's not virtuous, that's a communication to me that there's something wrong with me that I'm lying. I know people who they do things that they believe are right and then they lie to cover it up. Um, have you ever done something you thought was good and then you didn't want anyone to find out about it? That right there tells you what you did wasn't good. That's happened to me. I think to myself, if what I'm doing is the right thing, I don't need to hide it. And, and, and it's good for other people to know that, but you don't want to know who the most important person is to know that? me. 
And that's one of the things that God helps us know. How do you know when you're off track? Well, are you blameless? Do you love God? And is that expressed in what you do? In every relationship, at work, everywhere you go, you're thinking to yourself, what pleases God? That's what those three things are an expression of. How about the next one? Who shows love in the way they treat other people. So the way you treat other people says something about your relationship with the Lord. Um, Psalm 15.3 says, Who does not slander with his tongue, who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Here's the building in this, okay? This is the building. It's slander. That's just generally speaking poorly about people, tearing people down with your words. Who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his neighbor. That's somebody kind of around you, your neighbor. There's distance there. Nor take up a reproach, and reproach becomes even stronger, and so does the, the next word, your friend. So are you even hostile, and do you undermine the people who care about you, who are closest to you? Um, how do you treat other people? Are you loyal? Are you faithful? Uh, do you love your neighbor as yourself, the way Jesus said, love me and then love others. And if you don't do that, well, that says something about your standing before God. The one who shows love for God, here's the next thing, in what he or she values. What do you value? What's important to you? What do you respect? What do you desire? Psalm 15, 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord who swears to his own hurt and does not change. See, we live in a celebrity culture. We want the autograph of the professional athlete, of the musician. Uh, and sometimes we have musicians. Like I remember when I was in high school, one of the most popular groups, actually loved this group, Iron Maiden. I apologize for admitting that to you. I, I, I started... I started learning guitar because even as a non-Christian, I couldn't bring myself to listen to their music. Want to know what my favorite song was? The music part of it was 666, Number of the Beast. And, and I'd grown up in a Christian home, and I'm just thinking, yeah, I'm not a Christian, but I can't even bring myself to listen to those words. But, man, I love the music. Um, do people run around wanting the autographs, putting posters on their wall, of people who hate God. Um, do we value the advice? Like this is Psalm 1, the whole thing is advice. Do we take somebody who um, they hate God, everything that they do is opposed to God, and then they write advice on living life? Um, there's a lot of unbelievers that fit into that category. They want to tell you how to parent. They want to tell you how to do marriage. They want to tell you how to deal with the struggles that you're having in your life, and they hate God. Do you despise a vile person, or do you hold them up and exalt them and esteem them? Um, how, how about the next phrase, who honors those who fear the Lord? Do you look at somebody who's maybe not that successful or maybe not that beautiful? I mean, this is dating relationship stuff. Who are you attracted to? People who love God, that's their heart is for the Lord. Do we appreciate and value and esteem that? Or would we rather go hang out with some famous person and go to nice restaurants and drive in Ferraris? Like, what do you value? That's an expression of your values, by the way, how you value those things. And then here's the third one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. <laughs> you ever seen this happen? Uh, somebody makes plans with somebody, and then um, they get a better invitation. Hey, you want to come over to my house for a swim party? Well, I've got nothing to do, sure. Somebody calls you up. Hey, we're all going to Magic Mountain. We got some free tickets. Who wants to go? I'm sorry, Disneyland. Magic Mountain, that's for Santa Clarita. But, but Disney, I got some Disneyland tickets. You want to come? You call your friend. Hey, I'm not going to be able to make it over to your house because something better came up. Do you swear to your own hurt and you don't change because you keep your word? And pleasing God and honoring God and telling the truth actually matters more to you than whatever you get. 
That's an expression of personal value. And then here's the, here's the, the last one in, in verse 5. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. That's um, your love for God being displayed toward people who are weak people who are in need. And there's this contextual thing in, in, um, in the nation of Israel, you were not allowed to loan money to a fellow Jew at interest. So some, one of your Jewish neighbors needed some money to buy some seed. You could give him the money and he could give it back. You could not charge them interest. Now you could charge a Gentile interest, but you could not charge a fellow Jew interest. And so that's like, that, that was just like a family commitment. You don't take advantage of the people who are close to you who are in need. And, um, and so that's like kind of the background. But it's just saying one who does not lend out his money at interest, and that's just generally speaking, who does not take a bribe against the innocent. So I was thinking about how this worked its way out. Michelle's selling cars at a dealership, and her manager gets saved driving his mom's car into a um, driving his mom's car into a shop. She had uh, Charles Stanley playing on the radio. He hears it gets saved. He, he and his whole family were in this Catholic church. All their kids were in there. He becomes a Christian. After a while, he starts to realize, man, this isn't Christian. I mean, I, Mary's here, and this, and this, and this, and where's Jesus? So he went to all the nuns, shared the gospel with all the nuns, and explained why he was leaving the church. So he ends up leaving the Catholic church, so that's one thing Michelle sees in his life. Here's the other thing that Michelle sees in his life. There would be people who'd walk in the door. They're just willing to pay anything when they're buying a car, and they'd get buried. Those other people would come in, and they would just grind you. Well, after this guy becomes a Christian, this old couple comes in. And there's just, yeah, okay, how much is the car? <laughs> All right, yeah, we'll, we'll pay whatever. They always start high and then work their way low. He walks out of the room. Now, no car dealership manager has ever done this, as far as I'm aware of, but he just says to Michelle, we have these people that come in, and they grind us down, and here's an old, nice couple coming in. They're willing to pay anything, and we're going to bury them? No way. We are giving them the best deal that we give people on this car. That's the difference between before Christ and after Christ. And I'm sure that God used that as part of Michelle seeing that transformation in his life, part of, what, part of what brought him to Christ. Here's a question. Do you take advantage of people that you can? Or are you diligent to care for the needs of other people? See, all of these things are a way that we're close to God. Here's the thing. When you're around God, that's how you'll be. It naturally flows out of your life. Number two, if you disregard those things and if you don't do those things, that's sinful and it brings God's discipline and it brings his displeasure into your life. So it's, it's kind of both. If you sin, you get discipline, but being around God gives us the heart we should have. But here's the thing I want to emphasize. We are not saved by what we do. We're not trying to earn standing before God. God loves us, but that has an influence and an effect in our life. Here's uh, another way that the Bible says that. It's kind of easy. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Uh, we see that in Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have not always obeyed, now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a reverence for obeying God, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. By the way, that's the second half of James. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then here is the amazing promise that God gives. Whoever, uh, verse second half of Proverbs 15, 5, he who does these things will never be moved. There is nothing more valuable that you can have in your life than God's favor and God's protection. Nothing more important. And if you have God's favor and protection, even the things that go wrong are, are just God's avenue of blessing for you. Um, that's the most important thing we need is God himself. Look at Second Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose hearts is blameless 
toward him. And uh, I love this one, Psalm 37, 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hands. Um, God has his hand on his children. And that's what we want, right? We want to be close to our Heavenly Father who loves us. We're not trying to perform to be able to be accepted. But God wants us to prioritize him. And as it relates to fatherhood, as it relates to being a dad and the leader of your home, which God calls you to do, working on you is more important than anything else you do. And if you don't do this, it will take the power out of everything else you do. And sometimes we're blessed because God takes away everything we care and value, and he's the only one we're left with. Um, hopefully God doesn't have to do that to us. But you want to know something? If he does, great. Because then we get the greatest treasure of all. And we can trust that the Lord is able to restore and to put things back together. And we pray for people. And we know that the same way God loves us, he loves them. So I hope Father's Day is a great day for you. If you're a dad, I hope your kids are loving you and encouraging you. I hope you have good memories about how you treated your dad. I have a few of those. And, and I'm hoping that the Lord will be gracious to you as he is to me as I think through the fact that all the ways I messed up and all those kinds of things, hey, God's gracious. He puts bro broken lives back together. And ultimately, we're all going to be in heaven where it's all going to be okay. And so we're doing the best we can here, but we have something amazing to look forward to. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness and for your love. And God, I just ask that you would give every single person here a great Father's Day. And Lord, our fathers were not all they should have been. There's things and hurts that we have because of that. And yet, Lord, you've given us a gift. Um, and and our, our dads were not all bad. There were also lots of really good ways that you blessed us. And ultimately, it's a reminder of the fact that you're our father. And Lord, for those of us who uh, we tried really hard as dads and we can make a long list of ways that we messed up, um, Lord, I just ask you to forgive me for the ways that I fell short and just pray that you would cover up um, and repair uh, through other avenues and through yourself, through your own hand. You would pr uh, repair those things in my kids' lives and that you would put other godly people that can encourage them and bless them. And Lord, that, um, uh, that you would um, just, Lord, that we would all be able to celebrate today. And, Lord, that even in the midst of any kind of challenges that we're having, God, the fact that you're there and that we have you, that that would actually be worth more to us than anything else. And so, Lord, we thank you. We love you.